Exactly. Yay. <laughs> Good news. Good news. Thanks for those of you who helped serve today. We appreciate that. And again, worship team, what a great job to focus our attention on this great news of what God has done for us. You're here today at Trinity Church. I want to welcome you, uh, one and all. If you are a guest, I want to welcome you. If you're here most of the time, all the time, we're super glad you're here as well. Students, we miss you guys at Crave. You were at a retreat, a lot of you, last week, so thanks for being back. Hope that was a good experience as you were moaning in caves. That's good. So Jim had quite the week. He had these guys up, way up out of, you know, above Fresno and then came back and joined us. Our pastoral staff, we missed Larry. He was on a trip with Karen back east, but the rest of us were able to go to a conference on Monday and Tuesday. Just had a great time. My whole goal was just that we would have a great time bonding together. And honestly, I wasn't all that interested in what we were going to learn because I just really wanted to connect. We learned some great stuff. So it was just this double win, and we're so grateful for that time together. I want to welcome you as we continue moving forward. These ideas, by the way, you heard from Grace and Nathan related to Halloween. We just, our hope is to be able to give you some ideas to be intentional, to be able to use and, and really leverage things like Halloween in a way to continue to build influence in people's lives and be a source of Jesus' influence. So that's our hope. It might even be a great thing to team up with someone and maybe another family or whatever and do something together. It doesn't have to be some big spread, just the idea of we're intentionally trying to connect with our neighbors. That's a, that's a huge win. You're with us in a series called This is a Football, and we're taking that Vince Lombardi quote. He had come off the heels of a a significant, tragic loss uh, in a championship game, and now rebooting for the next year rather than all these extravagant strategies. It was back to basics. Let's start with the basic element. This is a football, and we'll build from there. That's what we've been doing in our time together since August as we have been looking at God's Word in the book of Ephesians, and our real hope has been, God, we want to get on your page. This is not our church. This is Jesus's church. And therefore, we want to understand his objectives for his church and be in line with that. So number one, we can be pleasing to him. And number two, we can be a people of influence in our worlds. And so you've been walking through with us. If you're a visitor today, we're a guest. We're so grateful. Let me catch you up. We saw in the first three chapters this incredible element of what it means to be made new, what it means to be adopted into the family of God. As you walked through the lobby today or looked maybe over at the banners on the wall, you noticed that we wrote down names of things that represent whose we are. Now that we're in Christ, what's our new name? And things like forgiven, things like made new, things like redeemed, uh, adopted, all these things include now our new identity. And as we've been walking through, we, we found this amazing truth. Then we now as we're transitioning into the second half of this book, we're moving from whose we are to now living out that new identity. And we've heard, learned some really powerful realities that go along with that. God says, in my new adopted family, there's a culture. When you come into the family, I want you to live according to my design, according to my culture, primarily because it's the best. I've defined it because of what I want for you is, is better than anything you could derive on your own. But secondly, as we do this, we become a people who get to live out and demonstrate the goodness of being adopted by their heavenly father. So we've been looking at some of those things. You remember a couple weeks ago in chapter four, 
we actually came across an incredibly powerful help. By the way, we're in Ephesians. If I didn't tell you that already, if you have a Bible, we'll be in chapter five today. If you have notes in your worship folder, you might want to get those out. That'll help. Well, we get to chapter four, and we found this incredible um, just kind of method or, or process that in order to, be, to live out now this new life, we are to disengage from a series of things that marked our old life, were to be made new in our minds and now to engage in things that mark our new family culture. Now we said that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to utterly fail at that mission. But, but when you combine that process with that power, good things happen and change begins to take root in our lives. So living out that identity, we found some incredible examples of that earlier last week in chapter five. You remember things like disengage from sinful anger, disengage from using a mouth that tears people down to engaging in words that build them up. Those are some of the specific examples. And today we follow suit with a few more. So let's begin in your notes today. Number one, imitate your father's love for others. Imitate your father's love for for others. Beginning in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, we begin this today, another way of looking at that same phrase is imitate God, therefore, as dearly loved children. That's the idea. Follow your father's way is another way of saying that. And I was thinking about as a parent of raising four kids and in the process of that still, think about this as parents in the room today. What are the different types of traits and qualities that you just exude? It's who you are that your children pick up on. Okay, like you never had to, as it were, teach them this. They just kind of mimic your behavior. And as you think of that catalog of behaviors, that catalog of traits, they're usually not the ones you'd want them to imitate, correct? It's like, oh, you see them doing something, behaving in a certain way. You're like, oh, uh, at first you're like, where'd they get that from? And you realize, oh, from me. You know, that's how I act. So, so then we have to process and go, okay, you're picking up on all the wrong traits. That's not what I want you to emulate, not what I want you to mimic. Then it's interesting. The very traits that we do, the very traits that we really want them to model their lives at, they just act like they've never heard or seen this before. It's completely, you know, uh, empty in their minds. In our family, we have one of our kids whose name rhymes with Jackson. And... Um, And within him, it's fascinating, you know, one thing that Joanna and I pretty consistently have modeled is this idea that you work first and you relax later. That's kind of how you roll. Let's, let's get our work done first, then we relax. Interestingly enough, he's kind of inverted those. It's kind of relax, relax, relax. Oh, get it done because the deadline's here. And, and constantly before, between making lists for him, doing all these things, it's never seemed to rub off. Not sure it ever will. Yeah, but we obviously love him to death no matter what. And in that reality, this is what God's saying from the beginning is that modeling some of your behaviors and traits after me does not necessarily come easy. Does not necessarily just become natural. It's something actually that I need to give you direction. I need you to have a a command to understand. So those first words, be imitators of God, therefore, another way that your Bible might have stated those words. When we see the word therefore in the Bible, we need to ask, 
what it's there for. So it's kind of a summary statement. Paul's saying in light of all the examples we looked at last week to disengage and engage in, therefore, it all kind of boils down to this. Imitate your father. Emulate those qualities. Demonstrate those. Mimic those in your own life. And that will be an awesome way to live. You'll be living according to his pattern. I love what you're called. I love what I'm called as dearly loved children. Therefore, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. I want to push on what the Bible teaches and what the Bible teaches all throughout this book of Ephesians. God is crazy about you. He loves you richly, he loves you deeply, and he wants you to know it. He's not that unaffectionate father. But in his warm embrace and through words of encouragement, he wants you to hear it today. I'm crazy about you. I couldn't love you more. Now, the interesting thing that we do with that often is we, and I have been guilty of this in seasons of my life as well, we go, we, we take moments in, in our lives and we, we bask in the true greatness of being loved by God. God, thank you. That vertical reality is so powerful. God, thank you that you love me so richly. But we act as though in God's love for us that we're an only child. God, I love how much you love me and thanks that you only love me and thanks that you really don't care about these other people over here because they drive me nuts. You know, we, we kind of have that attitude and God's saying, no, as dearly loved children. I love you richly and I love you at the point of not only vertically wanting to show that to you, but then expecting horizontally that you would show that to each other. Be imitators of God as you've been loved, so love. And what a beautiful picture for us today to realize that the kind of love, remember love is such a word that honestly means nothing now. You can love your house, you can love your dog, you can love your spouse. I sure hope you don't love them all the same way, okay? So love gets watered down in our English word that it doesn't really mean anything anymore. God says, let me tell you what I mean. What kind of love am I after? Well, it's the kind of love that your big brother has already demonstrated to live sacrificially and to meet the needs of others. That's how I want you to love. That's what my love looks like. So while we bask in the amazing, extravagant, utterly undeserved love of God, let us be sure to imitate that loving example toward others because God's love was never meant to be something that you just simply soak up and keep to yourself, but something always that you give away. So today we begin with following our Father's example. Number two in your notes, be sure that sexual idolatry has no place in your life. Wow. Talk about a whiplash, right? Here's this loving father who loves you so much and all of a sudden you get hit between the eyes. Be sure that sexual idolatry has no place in your life. What do we mean? Chapter five, verse three. But among you, interesting, connect the dot back, dearly loved children, talking to his own family, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed Because these are improper, they're ill-fitting for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. 
For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Okay, we've got some unpacking to do. One of the things that I find so often in churches is that we will be very quick to rail against or to get on board with the deviation from God's design, but in doing so, we rarely go back upstream to explain what is God's design. So today, I want to actually take some time, rather than just take this, these few verses and just let them pound, I want to go, let's go back to what God's design is in the first place. And the first reality is this, God designed you to worship. You are built for this. This is what it is to be human. God designed this within your DNA. The problem is this, like everyone before us, We have taken this God-shaped vacuum, this God-shaped void, and tried to stick every other thing into it, trying to fill it, trying to meet this need. God says, I built you with a void, a vacuum only I can fill. So that empty space in your life, that converts to the things then that preoccupy you, the things that you're devoted to. Let's do a couple things. Let's even define the terms. Worship is not only what we did up here earlier on stage today. Worship music may be a form, an expression of worship, but ought not be confused with the totality of worship. Worship in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, it's actually the word for heavy. And it means the idea that someone has such great worth, heaviness, that you ought to bow down and be devoted to them. That's the the intrinsic quality of that verb. And, And therefore, when you walk out that idea, and you would talk about in the former testament, the Old Testament, you talk about idol worship, then you would think of, well, idol worship is that thing you you carve out of wood, you carve out of stone, you chisel out, and you put before you, and you bow down and you do lots of moga mogas to it. You know, that's idolatry. And it was. But therefore, we feel pretty off the hook because we don't do stuff like that. You probably don't have little statuettes that you bow down and do your prayers to and therefore think, well, therefore, I'm not struggling with being someone who's an idolater. I would simply suggest that our statuettes have taken new forms, like the thing that you get around town in. Like the thing that you showcase on your wall along with all your other accomplishments. Like the thing that you get excited about when you look at your checking account, your savings account, your retirement account, those digits there. Or anything else that seems to have an obsession for you. These are the things that you bow down and worship. That's why I love the, the, uh, the synonym for worship of preoccupation, the things that get my attention. That's what I am in reality a worshiper of. The great news about musical worship, it grabs hopefully our attention at least for moments and causes us to think and be preoccupied somewhere else. God says, I built you to be a worshiper. In your notes, you were built for worship to be devoted and to serve something. That is part of what it means to be human. 
God built you with that void. It's not something to be frustrated by. It's not something to be angry with. It's the reality of our design. The problem is we've dethroned God. God inserts himself, wants to be on the throne of our lives. We dethrone him when we go out and pursue anything else. The age-old question is not if you worship, but what or whom. The choice is yours. That's part of God's design, step one. Step two, God designed human sexuality with a very defined audience in mind to fulfill a very defined purpose. The verse that pretty much all throughout the Bible is a foundational verse for all things related to marriage is in Genesis 2.24, right? It's this great verse when when Moses is, is not there, right, with Adam and Eve, this first union, but he's saying their first union represents what God's design is. Look at Genesis 2.24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This powerful, I, I love this, this idea I, I for a, a while when I was a family pastor trying to wrap my head, how do I help people in their marriages I've never come across, if you just stop, if I give you an assignment to go, come up with a really good synonym for the word marriage. And that just sets your mind on a journey. There's so many different ways to try to nuance that and grab it. But I came across the word oneness. And I think oneness speaks it so clearly. That's what God's intent design is, is that you would be two becoming one. So in that oneness idea, sex is to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife in a committed lifelong marriage with the primary purpose of enhancing their oneness. If God's design is oneness, that's what sex actually does. It enhances that reality, driving that stronger and stronger in that relationship. That's God's purpose. But this is an antiquated, restrictive, condemning concept in a culture that has disregarded God's design and has sexuality today with no restrictions. I don't say that to wag my finger and be all mad. It's just what it is. But the interesting thing is this letter is written to the Ephesian believers. Today we gather as Trinity Church looking to God's word to say, God, help us know your design so we can live according to it. One of the, it's one of the most significant, this idea of sexual idolatry, it's one of the most significant examples from Romans 1 of God giving them over. Giving them over, letting them run free with what they think they want, what they think will bring satisfaction. And I'll say to this, we have multiple generations in the room today. Here's the thing. I would wholeheartedly agree that sexual stimulus, visual sexual stimulus is more rampant and available to our young adults than it's ever been. But don't, don't begin to think that it's just become a problem. You go back in your own life history and whether you had porn available on the internet or not, the reality is, is that you have seen and you have seen a culture that has consistently gotten this wrong. And it's not a new thing. It's not a new thing. First look, Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And the created things we're talking about today are not statuettes, they're simply each other's bodies. A created thing. I've exchanged that preoccupation with a different one. And when we say the problem's not new, remember who Ephesians is written to. Week one, we talked about the city of Ephesus, a place I've been able to visit, some of you have as well. 
and I showed you my Uncle Harley pictures, right? And one of the things I couldn't show you much of because there's only one pillar left today, but is one of the, the, the former, the ancient seven wonders of the world, a temple to the goddess Diana. Now, Diana represented, among other things, the goddess of fertility. So within Diana's beautiful, picturesque, pillared temple, housed a place for temple prostitutes, housed a place for erotic worship rituals, all under the name of religion. This was religious in Paul's day, talking to these people. So for a moment, let's realize this is nothing new. Inundated with a sexual idolatry actually in that physical city, Paul is saying, hey, I know where you live. I know what you're exposed to on a daily basis. I know what some of you used to do by way of life. Let me help you with something. That lifestyle is ill-fitting. That lifestyle is improper. It's inappropriate now that you're one of God's kids. See, this passage is usually, like so many others, taken out, extracted from the hole, and simply another hammer. Another slap you on the hands, don't. But here's what I want you to see. See the context of Ephesians. See that this is so much bigger than a don't passage. This is from a loving heavenly father to his kids that says, don't let this characterize your life because that's not how we roll now that you're in my family. Things are different in this new relationship. The part of our text actually identifies three concepts that there ought to not even be a hint of among us. The first translated sexual immorality is the word porneia, very obvious where we get our word pornography from. Interesting though, listen to the meaning. The meaning of the word porneia, it's the selling off. It's the willful surrendering of sexual purity. That, That should be a powerful word image in your mind. It's something for sale. And it refers to promiscuity of any and every type. The other word, impurity, It's translated, it literally means unclean. Here's the interesting thing. Nine times out of 10, when we find that word in the Bible, it's always connected to sexual uncleanness. So like the others, this one relates to that. And lastly, greed, just simply the idea of a lusting for more. Now here's the interesting thing. We've actually seen these terms before, even in the book of Ephesians. Go back a chapter, chapter 419. Paul is describing what the Gentiles, remember he's using that term, and obviously there are Gentiles in the Ephesian church, but they don't live anymore like the Gentiles do. And who are they? Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Of those three terms, two of them are the exact words found in Ephesians 5, and the idea of sensuality or sexual immorality are cousin terms. So what Paul is saying is simply this, and and walk it out. He's simply using logic and saying, this is who you were. It does not represent, it has no place anymore for who you are and who you're becoming. Rather than this be just another series of don'ts, see it through the lens of a loving heavenly father who wants better for you than you even want for yourself. And he says, I love you so much, I want you to live out 
my design and the best life I ever intended for you. He also mentions that joking around, speaking carelessly about things related to sexual impurity, they're out of place. They're things they ought to disengage from. And they ought to be replaced with thanksgiving. Now, I was reading that, like you might have just read with me a minute ago and reading, that's an interesting contrast, an interesting foil. Why would you contrast coarse joking with thanksgiving? And a commentary I came across, I thought, said it so well. It said, one concerns a preoccupation and degradation of what someone has idolized. You, interestingly enough, people don't use that kind of vulgarity or obscenity or coarse joking unless they're people who are often thinking about sexually immoral things. Your mouth just isn't, it, it does, if, what, you know, what did Jesus say? From the heart, the mouth speaks. So if that's something that dominates your language, it's probably because you have an, an obsession and idolatry of that in the first place. Paul says, or the commentary says, take that contrast and say instead, the, the other concerns someone who is content and grateful for what God has provided, not lusting for more. Thanksgiving is the antithesis, of course, joking about sexuality because it's saying one is like, I'm striving, lusting for this, and the other says, I'm content with what I have. That's a cool concept. We get to a series of words, though, in this whole order that I will tell you I, I really want to teach very clearly. I'm very candid with you. These words have caused me trouble. Let's read it. It's from chapter 5, verse 5. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Just sit on that for a second. You see, we began in Ephesians 1 talking about the amazing, almost ludicrous love of God that would take slaves to sin on the block, see any value or worth in them, purchase them, not to become his slaves, but to become his sons and daughters. Remember, even in chapter one, that they might become heirs, H-E-I-R-S, inheritance. That's what God says. And all throughout this book of Ephesians, we have continued to rightfully pound the drum of this is whose you are now that you're in Christ. And there's not even been a hint of anything talking about someone not being included in that family as part of that inheritance until now. This is the first time this kind of language has shown up. Nowhere up until now have we seen this. So now that we process this, what does this mean? What does it mean that the apostle would say that people whose lives are defined by these behaviors have no inheritance in the family of God? What could that possibly mean that someone would be excluded from being in God's family? Watch this. Unless they never were really included in the first place. What do, what do I mean by that? Why, why, why am I all of a sudden becoming a fruit inspector? I'm not. Listen to what I'm saying. One of the most helpful parables for me for understanding this idea of, of, of God's redemption and, and acceptance of us into his family comes from the parable of the sower and the seed. And this is Jesus talking, and Jesus is saying in, in very easy to understand terms that people totally would have gotten. And in agrarian culture, everyone understands throwing seed to plant. 
So a sower goes out, he's throwing seed, and as he's throwing the same consistency, meaning the seeds never changes, it's all the same stuff. But what does change are the different types of soil. One type of soil he throws it on is so hard, the birds come and steal it away because there's nowhere for it to go. Another type of soil begins to take root, but then as it does, it can't really go any farther and the sun scorches it and the plant dies. A third type of soil also begins to take root and as it does, it begins to grow, but the weeds choke it out and it never becomes anything productive. And the fourth soil of all four of the types, only one produces a crop. Remember that a sower, a a, a farmer, he throws seed not just to see plants grow up. He sows seed to produce a crop. Never miss that. I forever was confused by this parable till I understood that. You throw seed to produce a crop, not just little green plants. And so this third type of soil, Luke opens it up. When Jesus says the parable, people are, including the disciples, scratching their heads. What are you talking about? Then as he unpacks it, Luke chapter 8, verse 14, the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, watch, and pleasures. And that word would be synonymous with sexual idolatry. And they do not mature. It's the third soil. Seed is thrown there, but nothing ever grows to produce a crop. What is so important to me today is this, is to balance, to balance these words. For on the one hand, to pull the punch and say, God's word really isn't asking you to inspect your own heart would be foolish because this passage means to do that. But in in turn, to be able to say, if you struggle with sins related to sexual idolatry means you're not in the family of God is also foolish because I don't think this passage teaches that. So what are we talking about? What, What kind of reality do we mean? A commentator I found, I think, said it so well. I put it on the screen for you. The apostle is not asserting that the believer who ever falls into these sins is automatically excluded from God's kingdom. Rather, What is envisaged here is the person who has given himself or herself up, who has crossed over without shame or repentance to this way of life. Someone who has replaced the worship of God, the preoccupation with God, with the idol of immoral sexual behavior. For a little bit of levity in your notes, according to this passage, you won't bump into James Bond in heaven. Okay, think about that for just a second. You won't bump into James Bond in heaven. Here's why I use a fictitious character. If you've seen these movies about this incredible, you know, um, British spy, besides him being good looking, besides him uh, being incredibly great at all things spying, and besides him having this great accent, he's an incredible womanizer. In every movie, he's with multiple women per movie, and in this reality, then the question is, is there ever a sense of him having any kind of regret or remorse for living this sexually idolatrous life? And the answer is no. And the answer is also because James Bond's never portrayed to be a believer. So guess what? He's just living consistent with the old man that he is, living consistent with being in bondage to sins that relate to not being in Christ. Here's what God's saying today. If this type of sin 
is the type that for you is in your life and has very little of any kind of remorse, very little of any kind of problem. And remember, I've been at this for 24 years. I've interacted with all kinds of people who even under the name of Christian would say, and what's the problem with that behavior? I'd say, well, according to God's word, there's a problem. And in light of even seeing this today and still going, I don't think it's important. That's where I would say, be cautious. Be very, very cautious. If you're here today and you would say, Todd, I really struggle with sexually related sins. And I want to tell you this. You read that. I put that on the screen about the commentary with great purpose. That doesn't mean that you're excluded from the family of God. What that means is, though, there's something consistently out of place in your life. And are you willing to get help? Because it begins with repentance. It always does. The great news is after this service with Bill, Larry, myself will be down here. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to meet with you this week if we can be helpful to you. That's a very honest invitation. But I want to say there's a third type of category of someone here today. Someone who would say, Todd, this really was my story. I had made an idol out of sexuality in a very God-dishonoring way. But that's who I was. It's really not who I am anymore. And because of the sequence of having this process of disengaging and engaging and having the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, this has no hold on me anymore. I want to say today is a day of celebration for you. Today's a day to go, God, look at what you've done and look at what you've changed. When we look at words that are so powerful that I dare not minimize them and I dare not overdo them. I just want to present them right. Here it says the passage works further through. It says, therefore, do not be partakers. Don't be partners with them. Those words can mean this. It can mean students especially. I think about you. Who's influencing you? Who's influencing you in your life? And and if there are things that you have people in your world that are involved in, and, and by the way, it sure shouldn't just relate to high school students. This relates to all of us. But there are people in my life that are influencing me towards sexual idolatry and away from what God rightly deserves in my life. Man, that's not just words to those who are struggling. It's also to words of those who could be influenced. You know what it also just very clearly means? Don't be that partner. Don't be that person that as they're engaging in sexual idolatry, you're joining them. You're the other half of that equation very clearly. So we take some really heavy stuff and it brings us to our final point today that I think actually ends us going in the right direction. Number three in your notes today. Live in a way that evidences that you are light. Live in a way that evidences that you are light. Chapter five, verse eight. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness righteousness and truth and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That's why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. 
I want you to see the contrast of these very first terms, and I think the absence of prepositions. I am not an English major, but I look things up on the internet, okay? Here's what I know. You were once darkness, not in darkness you were. However, great news of contrast. However, now you are not just in the light, you are light in the Lord. I don't know if you ever stop and think about that much. Those are words of actually great encouragement. The contrast of who you were and now who you are. Like you, I've heard that illustration for a long time that Christians are kind of like the moon, right? Kind of this big rock that's out there and that you cannot see unless it's illuminated by the sun. But this passage, whether that illustration is true or not, this passage doesn't teach that. This is passage doesn't say anything about you reflecting anything. It says you are. You are light in the Lord. And it talks about now being true, being that your nature has changed, there should be evidence. There should be fruit. I love this Greek word. It's the word karpos. And, and it literally does mean fruit. But the other thing it means is evidence. There should be some way to tell. You know, it's not the only thing, but one of the things that um, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ and Sue Arnett, that was my mom, one of the things all of them have in common, they're really good at helping me understand that you can tell what kind of tree it is by looking at its fruit. They all helped me with that. And that's all Paul is saying. Now that you are light, not just in the light, you are light because the Lord is in you. Let it look like that. It should evidence itself with things like goodness, breaking that word down, loving what God's definition of good is. Righteousness. Sometimes we make that word, it sounds so Bible land. It just means doing what is right. And finally, truth. Knowing what is reality versus another version of it. These are the things that are to hang off the branches of my life. The fruit of the light live as, children of the light live as fruit. Let there be evidence of whose you are. And look at that next phrase, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have you ever had anyone do that? Maybe, maybe about the time of a birthday or something coming up, they ask you, they go, hey, hey, what would you like? I didn't grow up in that home, by the way. I think this is actually a really good principle of gift giving. I didn't grow up in the home. I grew up in the home that was like, surprise! <laughs> and you're like, wow, never would have even guessed I wanted that. Thanks, you know? <laughs> and I was just always, and Joanna's been so great about that. She's like, hey, why don't we ask them what they would like and try to find that out? And I'm like, that's weird thinking, but okay, let's try that. <laughs> but imagine someone coming up to you and saying, hey, what would you like for your birthday? And you tell them. And then the response is, good to know. And it'll get you anything in line with what you asked for. And you're just like, you're asking the question, why on earth did you ask? I love this phrase. Find out what pleases the Lord. How do you know? You ask. You ask him. The good news is, is that in many parts of our lives, he's already provided the answer. It's in the book you're holding today. It's in the app that's on your phone. 
Find out what pleases the Lord. We're going to do a little social media experiment this week. Check it out. That will mean for anyone under like 30, you're going to have to get a Facebook account because I know you don't have one. So, um, but this is what we're going to put on our uh, Trinity Facebook page this week. It says, live as children of light and find out what pleases the Lord. What have you found out pleases the Lord? Now, the wording is a little wooden, but it's to emphasize that's what that says. And so what I want you to do this week is just add to the comment flow. But here's the only thing I would ask is as you add to comments, don't just tell, tell us something you think. Tell us something you know because there's a chapter and verse behind it. Add a scriptural reference that says, this is what pleases the Lord and I know so because I opened my Bible and it says so. And here's the cool thing. Not only will we have this really cool kind of social media experiment this week to see as people keep adding, but everyone in your news feed will see what you've added to the conversation. I love that. I love any way we can get your influence, whether it be face-to-face or over social media, your Jesus influence, we want to enhance that. And this is just one simple way to do that. I can't wait to see the kinds of things that are gonna come of that uh, next week. Let's wrap up our passage today. In this reality then, what, what does this steering clear, and it's just the opposite word, akarpos, the fruitless deeds of darkness, Here's the interesting thing. There's a verse in there that is really hard to translate because it's very vague and it's really hard to nail down. The NIV translated it as everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And I actually think that's the best shot at it. But here's the interesting thing. Remember we said a minute ago that, that you don't, in this passage, reflect a light. You are light now that you're in the Lord. So imagine it this way, as you bring your Jesus influence, as you bring the spirit of God, remember we said last week, don't grieve, don't bring sorrow to the spirit of God who is in you. As you bring that spirit of God, that light into your world by nature, not because you're trying to, not because you have this like focusing tool that kind of, you know, you're just you. And as you bring that light into your world, other things become exposed. Whether you meant to or not, they just do. And here's the interesting thing. And everything that is not a light is illuminated by the light. How cool is that? To think about you just simply walking in your life according to God's way, you bring a Jesus influence. And by the way, please don't confuse Jesus influence with judgmental morality. Those are two different things. How many times did Jesus come in contact with sinful people? And who did he often judge were the religious people? Not the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes. He spoke the truth in love, grace and truth, but it's actually the people he condemned were the religious hypocrites. Bring your Jesus light and the things around you will be illuminated. Here's our game plan this week. Walk in your Father's love and light. Twice today you were called children. Walk according to your father's example in his love, in his light. Let's pray. Father God, this past passage has so much for us to consider, so much for us to deal with. And we say thank you. Thank you that you've entrusted it to us Because not only do we want to know what pleases you, like it says, find out what pleases the Lord. We want to please our audience of one, our heavenly father. But God also, real honestly, 
We just want to know how to live because your word tells us and a loving heavenly father wants us to know your design, wants us to live the best way possible because that's always been your heart for us. Help us to stop thinking that you're cheating us, that we're losing something by living this life and help us realize that that's what a good, good father does. He tells us the truth and leads us in his design. Father, this week, these words hit us for some no closer to the heart than we could have even tried. God, help us not just feel bad. Help us lead. How great your words, your kindness leads us to repentance. God, lead us there this week and bring change to us, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.